Marina Franklin here, your host. This week on Friends, there's so many conspiracy theories out there right now that I decided to re-air this brilliant episode with professionals who have the facts. So not only are you getting a bonus new episode with Dr. Wayman Merrill, I am also re-airing this brilliant episode with Dr. Florencia Polite. So sit back, listen. If you didn't hear it before, this is a great week to take in a conversation with professionals who know. Welcome back to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. This week on Friends, new friend to the show, Dr. Florencia Greer-Polite. She's an associate professor of clinical obstetrics and gynecology and chief of the division of general OBGYN at University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine. She is responsible for the largest division in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, including four clinical practice sites. Dr. Polite is a native of Philadelphia and a graduate of Harvard College and the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. And it's good to have her here because we need someone who knows what they're talking about when we talk about that vaccine, right? And if you listen close, you will hear how similar she sounds to one of our favorites. But you'll have to listen to the show to find out who that is. Also new to the show, Rafiq R. Kalam Eddin II. He's a current resident of Bedstuy, Brooklyn. Rafiq is the founder and managing partner of Ember Charter Schools for Mindful Education, Innovation, and Transformation. And he's the founder of the hashtag Black Led Schools Matter Initiative and co-founder of the New York Black Latinx Asian Charter Collaborative. He is a social entrepreneur, activist, teacher, lawyer, and nonprofit leader with over 25 years of experience. Welcome, Brother Rafiq. And welcome back, a Bronx native, Melissa Diaz. Melissa is a unique and rising talent in the New York City comedy scene. She has performed regularly at Caroline's on Broadway. She plays in the Devil Cup and the Laugh Your Asheville Off competitions. And she appeared at the New York Comedy Festival, where she was named one of New York City's comics to watch. I want to thank all of our listeners of Friends Like Us because of you. We make some pretty impressive lists like Oprah Magazine rating us as a podcast that every woman should hear. We thank everyone, of course. You can hear us on Google Podcasts now, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts. Review us there on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. You can email us at friendslikeuspodcast at gmail. Our Instagram is friendslikeuspodcast and our Twitter is friendslikeustin. Leave us a tip or a donation by going to our Patreon page. Go to Patreon backslash friendslikeus. You can also now go to Marina Franklin's YouTube channel as we do a weekly live stream where we recap the podcast and we shout out our fans who review us. You might even get a free ticket to a comedy show. There is merch available with the new logo. So don't forget to represent your favorite podcast. Go to marinafranklin.com and get yours today. And with friends like us, it'll help you feel not so alone because more content is on the way. Wash those dirty little hands, wear your mask, and don't forget, Black Lives Matter. Welcome to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. I'm so glad to have you guys on, on Inauguration Day. It's just completely awesome. Today on the show, we have two new friends. We have Dr. Rennie Polite. Can I? Did I say it right? 
Dr. Rennie Polite? Florencia Polite. Rennie's my nickname. Okay. If we're going to use the doctor, then we use Florencia. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Dr. I want to get it right because I've gotten in trouble before. So Dr. Florencia Polite. I could say Dr. or Professor Rafiq Kal- Kalam. How do I say the rest? Sorry. You could actually just say Brother Rafiq and make it really easy for you. Brother Rafiq. That's it. Yes. And Melissa Diaz is back regular on the Friends Like Us podcast. Thank you. But it's been a while since we've seen you. She's a comedian. So what we wanted to talk about today and the reason we have Dr. Florencia Polite here, Dr. Polite, is because we've been talking about vaccines on the podcast like regularly. And a lot of times it's just us. We're comics on the show talking. We don't know stuff. I mean, we, we really don't know. We want some real facts and answers. And, and someone, my uncle told me this. He's a doctor in internal medicine in LA. And he said, you want to get the, your information from the people who study this who know what they're doing, who are professionals in this, not from your uncle or your aunt who talks about putting garlic in your ear. Agreed. So that is why we have you here, Dr. Pralit. Tell me, like, what are some myths that we can dispel about this vaccine for the coronavirus? Oh, we have so many, Marina. Let's start off with the fact that the, the vaccine has a live virus in it. I think that to me is, for me, was the one of the major pieces of knowledge that affected me taking the vaccine. Because I wasn't originally a gung-ho yes to taking the vaccine either. And quite frankly, I don't think that the majority of people I know would have signed up had we not actually increased our own knowledge base. So the fact that there's no actual coronavirus in the vaccine to me was really important. So there's this mRNA particle that goes into your body that tells your body to start making the antibodies against coronavirus, and then it chops up the mRNA. So the other myth is that the mRNA component is adopted into your DNA and can affect things in the next 5, 10, 15 years, which would be very scary if it actually changed your own genetic code. But those are, I would say, two really big myths. And then the third is that it was rushed so that, you know, we've had all these other diseases that we've never been able to come up with. And all of a sudden... We just had this vaccine that, that sort of dropped out of nowhere. And I am an associate professor at uh, University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. They've been studying mRNA vaccines for 15 years. Didn't study them in, a, in clinical people to, to stop coronavirus because coronavirus wasn't around then in the same way that it is now, but actually studying the way that a vaccine can be made with something like mRNA. And then there were a few things that actually allowed the vaccine to be spread up. For one, when you actually are looking at a population where the infection is prominent, you can actually study what you need to study faster. So when we have something like a pandemic, where almost at this point, everyone knows someone who's had coronavirus, you actually have a number of different ways that you can, in the lab, figure out, okay, is this gonna work? Is this not gonna work? And so you have you know, billions of dollars that were put for really smart people in all countries to say, all, all hands on deck, right? Like all other research didn't stop. But I mean, if you weren't studying COVID, you didn't even need to be in the hospital. I mean, it was like, it was, when we say essential workers, we mean like essential, essential. I'm an OBGYN. So trust me, babies are still coming. We were considered essential. The last nine months, I've been in the hospital as often as I was before, sometimes more, quite frankly, um, because we've had to, you know, come up with systems where we could have doctors at home who were either 
exposed from their family members or who, you know, had a fever and we didn't know what it was, even though there were fevers that existed prior to COVID and there were fevers that existed after COVID, but we had to come up with a call, you know, coverage system. So those to me would be the three, the three big myths. Uh, but there's a ton of other ones, right? That it causes Bell's palsy, that it can sterilize women. I mean, the myths are far and wide. It can sterilize women? Yes, I heard that one, that one too. <laughs> She's giving a thumbs up for our listeners who can't see that. That would definitely, Melissa, be a thumbs down. And the good news is that there's not that many ways that you can get to the tubes. But I understand why specifically people of color would be concerned about any scientific discovery because we, we in the past in medicine have to own the fact that we have done some really terrible things to people of color and Black women specifically in terms of contraceptive access and sterilization. So it's not surprising to me that these things get connected. The goal is to give out in- information, though, that disconnects these things. Well, you forgot the 5G chip and you also forgot the, uh, the tau- cell towers and the other conspiracies. I don't even know if I've heard cell towers. I, heard, I have heard about the chip in you, which... There is no chip. The cell towers is the 5G. So you didn't address those, doctor. Okay, got it. Yeah, my nieces are like, the government will be able to follow you after you get the vaccine. My nieces have thought this, yes. They're 14 years old. <laughs> she mm. thinks that, and then she just walks around with her iPhone that can be geolocated. It can actually track. <laughs> As my daughter say, the government may follow us, but it might be because we have this Google thing in our house that we keep saying, hey, Google. And at this point, I think it knows who likes breakfast, what time I make dinner, and everything else that goes on in this household. Now, I should point out for our listeners who are probably going, God, she sounds familiar. You're right. This is <laughs> Professor Greer's sister, okay? So they're probably all losing their minds going, wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) She changed her name and she now changed her specialty. (laughs) Yes. But I, you know, I think it's so important because like I talk to people all the time and, you know, I I was talking to you before this about how I'm confused by some who are not afraid of the virus, but won't take the vaccine. I don't. I don't understand that. Like, there's this weighing of which one, and I'm, you know, do you get that a a lot in your, in your office? Or yeah, I mean, I think what you're talking about, Marina, is this risk assessment, right? And the truth is, how accurate are the the data is only as good as what you put into it, right? So it's how accurate is the data point that you're putting in there. So one of my colleagues said it's not about getting the vaccine versus not getting the vaccine. It's actually about getting the vaccine versus getting COVID. Because that's really where we are. And especially for people of color, there's a 200 times likelihood that you could die of COVID than that you would die from the vaccine. Because our population is being ravaged by coronavirus. Literally, Marina, the last text I got before I got on this call was my cousin saying that her boyfriend just got tested positive. Like, that's the last text message that I saw before I logged in here. Wow. We, we can't escape that. The last nine months, we've not been able to escape that family, friends, and not just getting the virus, but dying, right? So, I mean, this isn't, these aren't like theoretical things at this point. I don't know. I mean, I I assume everyone at this point knows someone who's been positive, but I think most people even know someone who's died. We had a woman at my job who lost 27 family members. At this point, since Black uh, community is still being ravaged by corona at this rate, that's so much higher than the general population, but you've had enough time to kind of make more studies and kind of get into those communities more and you know, retrieve data. So what, what are the reasons, like, what are the actual 
on the ground, physical, straight up reasons or why Black communities are still being affected at, the, at that rate? That, so that's a great question, Melissa. And this gets to race versus racism, right? So the reasons why Black communities are being, are, are literally being ravaged by coronavirus doesn't have to do with just the fact that we are Black or Latino. It actually has to do with we have less access to care. We're more likely to be in communities where we have multiple people in the same house. We're more likely to be at jobs where we don't have proper PPE. We're more likely to actually have comorbidities like obesity and diabetes that make a diagnosis of coronavirus now not just something that you can get through, but something that you actually might die from. So it's we call those the social determinants of health. But when you add all of those up together, it means real badness for a patient with coronavirus. And so when I hear about this in the hospital, like when I hear a patient, I was just on call and I heard about a patient who was obese, who had diabetes, who was pregnant, who had all these lung issues. And they was like, oh, and she's COVID resolved. And I said, she's COVID resolved. Like her COVID situation was that it was uneventful. And they were like, yeah, actually, surprisingly, but her two sisters died. One of them had a funeral yesterday. And I was like, that makes more sense. Right. So she looks like her sisters. Everybody doesn't die. But two out of the three people die. That's still a lot of people. This is what my uncle was saying that they still don't understand is why some people die and some people don't. They, they just don't. Is that true? Yeah, I was going to say, Rafiq, you look like you had something to say from before. Oh, yes. Well, I mean, you know, in our school community, we lost about 50 people between the months of March and June 2020. And we would have students who were getting on to the video and saying, mom won't wake up, auntie won't wake up, right? And so I think the stories that we were told was that they didn't want to go to the hospital because they thought they would die at the hospital. I mean, this this is the this is what Dr. Pleach referred to. Like we've got these like conflicting narratives that are just doing us harm, not caused by us. Like we have real substantial, meaningful distress of the medical establishment for sure. And so it might be not getting to care fast enough because we don't think care is going to be there for us, because it never has been. And so I I mean I, I would be interested to see when we kind of look back and we look at the data. And I'm not even sure how they're going to get at these data sets. That to me is like a public health question, right? Are we actually going to go and start to collect data from those of us they left behind, like those of the the people who were here and witnessed their passing? And so I think without that data set, we run the risk that we're just going to say, oh, comorbidities, though the same comorbidities are amongst white people and they're not dying at the same rates with similar comorbidities. So I mean, again, I'm curious to see what the data says. The infection rate for African-Americans, this is what I pulled up, is 62 per 10,000 compared with 23 per 10,000 for white residents. Yeah, that's where we get the three times more likely to die. Mm -hmm. And around 40% of Black residents said they would not get the coronavirus vaccine. And that is what we are seeing in our hospital, too, because right now it's just what people are saying. But most people don't have access to the vaccine anyway. Right. But in the academic medical centers where we actually are giving the vaccine out, we are seeing a discrepancy in staff uptake of the vaccine. Comorbidity. It's like a buzzword now. And it's like people get defensive over that being associated with the black community because people think that it's like blaming the black community for these higher rates, which is wrong. Agreed. I was wondering if you control for uh, white poverty and communities that are similar, because black communities are just, they're American communities. It's just American communities, right? So I was wondering if like Appalachian 
white communities, if they're, because they have similar comorbidity, right? They're maybe a little more antisocial. I don't think they live in as, well, actually, no, they do have as large families. So like, are those similar? Are those rates more similar? Or not. That gets to the point I originally said about this being not about race, it's racism. Right. Right. So it is not just in and of itself being black, but your Appalachian communities still have more open land than you do in the concrete jungle of a Brooklyn. So there are these like physical. Exactly. Yeah. Because this is a virus where being outside is considered to be better. Right. We weren't sure what the Black Lives Matter marches and protests would do in terms of coronavirus later on. But we actually found out, actually, if you're outside and you have a mask on, it wasn't as bad as we thought it would be. Unlike a Trump rally where people are outside, no one's masked. And now actually we are seeing things that happen four and five days, not just a rally, right? I mean, an event at the White House. So part of this absolutely has to go to the living conditions. And, you know, New York is a crowded place. I mean, Rafiq, you can tell us the demographics of your school, but that it affects, it's a similar demographic to a lot of urban cities. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we, about 90, 95% of my students are very low income. They live in households that have more than five people, right? They live in close quarters, cramped quarters. And because they live in close cramped quarters of public housing, there's no place to go, right? You can't, so, and they, and for those who didn't lose their jobs, they have to go to jobs where they're also really exposed to the public, right? So you've got this like, you know, kind of perfect storm of conditions kind of that layer on top of, again, what people call the comorbidities, right? And so, I, you know, it was a bad time to be here in New York during that time because there was also such a lack of information and then just just a general distrust. But, you know, I think you're absolutely right. The physical conditions of urban poverty provide a delta that I think increases the lethality of this virus when it comes to, you know, black and, and brown communities. You mentioned the jobs are fake, and I think that's a key portion of it too, right? I mean, I have been in the hospital since March, but having appropriate PPE and taking care of COVID patients. But yet the grocery store that I go to didn't put up a glass shield until two months into the pandemic, right? I'm going to the grocery store intermittently, right? I'm not going often. I'm hopeful that everyone in the grocery store is wearing a mask, but this is before they had a mask mandate. It's before they were keeping a certain number of people in the store. All the people who are stocking groceries are wearing their mask down below their nose. Not helpful. And we're interacting in these closed spaces where they're interacting with customer after customer after customer with no shielding and no mask. I literally said to my husband, is it appropriate for me to go talk to the supervisor of the grocery store to say, at this point, there should be a mask mandate for everybody who's, everybody who's in the store but especially your employees. And then luckily, it wasn't me, but I mean, luckily the, the whole chain put up a glass shield, but it took a long time for them to get the appropriate you know, accommodations that they should have gotten from the beginning. Yeah, also Rafiq, I wanted to speak to the, you were talking about the grandmothers who weren't going to the hospital, they were staying at home. I remember early on when de Blasio, who I'm not a fan of, I don't think many are. Nobody is. Oh. But he said, um, and I think Cuomo said this too, actually, if you're sick, just stay home unless you're really sick. Like, you know, just stay home three days. Do you remember that? Because they were afraid of overwhelming the hospital. Marina, not only do I remember that, when I got sick with COVID, I called my friend, Dr. Polite, because I was panicking because I was told not to come in. I called a bunch of times and they were telling me, and I'm a grown ass man with lots of degrees. 
And I felt intimidated to go in. I felt like, whoa, if I go in, I really might die. And so you can believe that, I mean, it's the, the data set is clear. Not only were they being told by public officials not to go in unless it's really, really serious. So I'm not sure how you know it's really, really serious while you're dying. They're just not sure about that, right? But not only that, they were already skeptical because of, again, just the way that they are treated by the health system. And so, again, it's like, again, it's this perfect storm that is hitting us. And I think the vaccine, I mean, again, I think this is another place where we're not even prioritized right now, quite honestly. We're not in 1A and 1B. If you look at the populations of people who make up 1A and 1B, at least in New York, and this is probably everywhere, the vast majority of that population is white. It is not black and Latinx, it's not black and brown, certainly not indigenous. And so when I keep hearing them talk about racial equity, I'm like, how did they not put this people? Even if we, even if we're, many of us are skeptical, more of us would still be getting it. And that's not the case. And so I think, again, this is another situation where the circumstances, racism, it is powerful. It is powerful. And how are you now with COVID? Like, did you have, was it the symptoms rough for you or did you overcome, like what happened? Well, I mean, I think, you know, what happened to me uh, probably is what happens to us. I got really, really sick. I mean, I work in the schools. So I work around kids. And so usually getting the cold is like a blip. I don't even pay attention to it. This was like the worst cold I've ever had, probably the worst flu that I've ever had. And so all of the worst symptoms, lost taste, all this other, all these other things. But I recovered. And I'm grateful that I recovered because I wasn't always necessarily sure. Now, since then, you know, we, you know, our school, we've been back on site since September. As long as we can remain open, we are open. And like you, I'm not a fan of this current administration in the city because just the regulations that they have for us to serve our families are just, they just don't map well. They've been negotiated. They're not really rooted in public health. But what I, what I do know is that since we have been back, we have been really vigilant. We've been really, really vigilant to try to stay as open as we can. And part of that is out of my own experience, having got, gone through it, I don't want anyone to go through this. So we're testing multiple times, you know, every two weeks. And now, I mean, I was an anti-vaxxer when it came to this before, too, again. Oh, you are? Okay. Oh, I was. I told Rini, I'm not getting that. No, 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 no. I was like, no. <laughs> uh-uh. I told Rini, I'm sorry, I told Dr. Polite and Dr. Greer. I'm sorry, I told Dr. Polite and Dr. I told both the sisters, no. I am not getting it. I was refusing. And you've um, changed your mind, huh? I absolutely have. And it's because if I don't believe nobody, I believe Black doctors. And I especially believe Black doctors who are getting the vaccine before I am. And so that, and then understanding that I'm not getting the virus. I mean, there was, there was a lot to that. So I got my first shot last week, last Monday, the first day that they allowed educators and teachers here in New York City to get it. And I thought, wow, I'm going to be a great example. I'm going to tell my staff. Not a single staff member has gotten the shot. Not yet. Not a single one. Are they looking at you like, we going to wait? Yes, they are. <laughs> they are. So I guess this is my question for you, Dr. Polite. Like, so the waiting of it is, and I, Whoopi said this on The View, and I thought this was a good point. She was like, well, by the time we get it, which will be July, enough people will have taken it and we'll know how it affects us. Will they have more trials or or has there already been enough trials? Because I think some people are waiting for the trials. So let's talk about that, Marina. So 
Pfizer and Moderna both had 30,000 people in them, right? That's why the vaccine is available from the FDA with the emergency use authorization, the EUA. The whole point about that is you're right. If you waited longer, the, you would get, everybody expects that it would get full FDA approval as they get more information and thus more numbers, right? After I got my first and second shot, I was enrolled in the CDC vaccine safe program. They texted me every day and I had to answer questions about symptoms. Were my symptoms mild or moderate? Did they stop me from going to work? So that they could actually get this increased body of information. But my, my answer about the waiting until July, Marina, is we've lost 400,000 people in eight months. Do you expect us to not lose anybody from January to July? Because let me tell you, as we're waiting for this herd immunity, we're waiting for the 60 to 90% of the population that becomes immune to COVID. We know that if you get COVID like Rafiq did from the infection, that your immunity wanes. We don't know how long that takes. We know that the vaccine gives you immunity for longer. But we also know that herd immunity is affected by the fact that you get new individuals into the community, right, who are born or who come, who aren't immunized. And oh, by the way, you're getting a part of the population that's dying on the other end. 400,000 people, right? More people than World War II, more people than 9-11 a day. So this is a numbers game. I hate to say it, but this is sort of like a Russian roulette for some people, not necessarily for everybody. If you're truly doing everything you think you can be doing, to ensure that you are safe, to ensure that no one who comes into your bubble is actually bringing anything. The perfect example of that is that show Blackish. Everybody thinks that everybody's doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Everybody thinks my quarantine is your quarantine. My quarantine ain't your quarantine. To get up in the up in our household, you got to be really quarantined. <laughs> I mean, it's like I know Doc, Dr. Greer was telling me about someone who was like, eventually told her that they they did not do everything they were supposed to do. And she's like not talking to that person. She still has not spoken to that. Yeah. And she said that on the air. So yeah. No, I mean, we are serious about that. But the truth is lots of people feel like, oh, but I can just go see that one guy. Right. I can just go get a little stuff on the side. Like you have no idea who people are being exposed to. And once you bring them into your bubble, the bubble is burst. Right. And then the, that's what the contact tracers are doing. They're going back and figuring out who's been exposed and who's been exposed. So to me, this is just, it is literally a numbers game, which yes, People who wait till July, I, I, I hope that they are safe. Like I said, our family had been doing okay. We've lost a couple family members. Don't get me wrong. We've had a decent number of COVID. But then I just got the call today. If I waited next month, there'll be other calls that come in for that too. So part of it is figuring that this assessment out. So I got my vaccine. The first date was available to staff members at our hospital because I was considered an essential of the essential workers because we're doing labor and delivery and taking care of COVID patients. I got my second shot on January 6th which I can remember because of the insurrection, right? <laughs> so I can remember it was very, it's very ingrained in my head. Right. Emotionally exhausted more than I was physically exhausted from the vaccine effect. So this is one, one of the theories out there, crazy ideas that I got from Mr. Keith Robinson, the comedian. He's like, when you, I'll do his way. <laughs> he goes, what makes you think that vaccine, you getting the same vaccine that the white people getting? This is what I don't understand. Like, how can they change a vaccine that they're flying over once it gets here? Can they do that? No, but Marina, what you're getting to is the medical profession is asking, black, we are asking Black people to trust us. And I understand why Black people, brown people are saying, we don't want to trust you because you have duped us before. People are literally concerned about tainted vaccines. And that to me is like deplorable that we even have to have this discussion. So 
What I would say is go to a place where you feel safe, right? Sign up where you're right next to the doctors and it's just whoever gets the vaccine. Do whatever you need to do to feel like the vaccine you are getting is not tainted. Do I think that that is actually something that is happening? No, but I understand how that could be something in our community that people are concerned about. Yeah, they think they're getting the water down. I, I asked to see where they stored it. I was being extra, but I was like, I, w- I gotta be, right? I wouldn't be able to tell my people I was extra too, right? So I asked them where they stored it, how long has it been sitting out? I wanna see the bottle. I wanna see it before they stick it in my arm. I asked all the, and they were, it was a sister. So she was like, I understand. <laughs> so, so she showed me, she showed me the whole nine. Yeah. Which Rafi, what you're talking about is like, to me, like nobody's asking us to just blindly trust, right? Like, you're like, I need to do the education on the front end. And then once I go there, I need to feel like I'm safe. And so to me, you have to do all these things to feel like you are safe. But they are worth doing. It's worth doing as opposed to just saying, no, I'm not getting it. Right. Do the hard work. Put in the effort to find out the education. Put in the effort to do the things you can do to be reassured. The trials have been done with 30,000. Right. But how many of those were is that black women? No, there's 30,000 people total. And the Pfizer one had almost 30% of the population was actually black and brown enrolled in the trial. Oh, okay. Actually, both, I know the president of um, one of the HBCUs, and they were actually, you know, saying, you guys, we want to be a part of this, right? Like, if this is a potential solution, we want to be a part of this solution. When, when the, um, you know, folks were actually asking for trial participants, there were people of color saying, "We look, I want to volunteer for this. I want to be enrolled in this in the beginning part so that I can actually tell my people we, we were not being pushed to the side. There's no biological basis why the vaccine would act differently in us at all. But to be able to say this is not the same as Tuskegee, like we are being involved in this from the making of it, from the black doctor who helped to make the vaccine to enrolling people in trials who said, I actually trust science to now having black doctors. And, and I think, quite frankly, a multi-strategy approach of folks who are saying, I'm signing up first so that you can see I've gotten it. I'm safe. I believe in it. And, you know, you brought up the fact that this was not rushed. This is uh, scientifically, this is like the first spaceship, right? It's, I mean, this process is revolutionary. Why we wouldn't want to be a part of that, you know, is I guess just because people don't understand it's not rushed, right? Yeah. I mean, look, Marina, like I said, we have a history with this country that we have to overcome. We got a lot of sci-fi movies that make you feel like, you know, something that's new is going to make, you know, our heads explode or put a chip in us or any of these other things that I think we just have to think about. How else are we going to get out of this situation? Like, that's what I thought about as I was walking to get the vaccine, the first one. I was nervous. I was literally on the first day at Penn, one of the first people I knew in anywhere who had gotten it. I didn't know any other doctor who had gotten the vaccine first. I'm signing up to do that because I believe I'm a leader and that's what leaders do. Why do we still have to wear a mask and wash our hands after we take the vaccine? That's the only problem I have is I really want Dr. Fossey and everyone who talks to answer like that, that, you know, they say you should still wear your mask and wash your hands, but they don't go into the why. They don't go into the why. So (laughs) one of my colleagues actually wrote about this, Dr. Uh, Gina South, did a great um, article on this. So first off, no vaccine is 100% effective, right? So 95% effective is what we're talking about for the Pfizer and Moderna, which are really pretty good. But 95% effective means five out of 100, 50 out of 1,000, 500 out of 10,000 people 
will not actually be immunized after they get the vaccine, those folks will be out there still able to get COVID. Okay. Second thing is that you don't develop antibodies right away, right? My mask protects you. Your mask protects me. So me getting vaccinated and just rolling out in the streets isn't actually helpful, right? I also have to remember that they're not sure if getting the vaccine means that you can't actually still spread coronavirus. Maybe you don't get sick from it and you may get only mild symptoms, but they can't promise you that you can't actually spread the virus. That is something that we're still learning. That's a, that's a I hate to say that's like a, a sort of point of contention, right? But that's actually sort of a big one. That's a big one because it, it's actually wrong, but people think that when you have the vaccine, you have the virus so you can be walking around and spreading it. it exactly. So that's, this is a, I think it's a little bit of a weirder one to try to explain to folks. And then people with compromised immune systems, masks protect them. And I have to be honest, as a doctor, I don't know that I'm ever going to go without a mask in the hospital again. There's, and there's a bunch of us that think that. First off, we haven't even really seen the flu this year. We all got our flu shots in the hospital like we're supposed to, but we haven't really seen the flu, which is pretty awesome that we haven't seen the flu. I know. Ain't nobody talking about the flu. Ain't nobody. (laughs) (laughs) Ain't nobody talking about the flu. Do people get colds anymore? And I was like, um, uh, yeah, they do. But the truth is, with the mask on, there's a lot less interaction. There's a lot of people who talk and spit. I'm good. And I'm a gynecologist, so I'm in the vagina. I'm good with a mask on. See, speaking of the gynecology, like I have a friend who I often worry about because she has a baby. She had had a baby during this time. Like you said, the babies are still coming. They're not stopping. You know, they keep coming, keep coming. And my question is, and especially for you, Brother Rafi, because you're with the kids, like their immunity is still questionable. Like, I, I, I just hear so many conflicting things. Like she's, she flew to L.A. with the baby to go see her uncle. I was like, she, the baby does not need to be on a plane right now. She's like, but she needs to, she needs to see her uncle. No, she doesn't know that. And she's like, well, she says, well, my doctor, my my doctor said that uh, our pediatrician said that the babies are fine with this. Well, do we know that? Well, I know. So Look, you know, I'm all crazy. <laughs> well, people, well, people should be rightly concerned about children and young people. There was the strain that was producing a Kawasaki-like response in children. And, and, you know, when children are harmed or hurt, especially if children die, you know, uh, I think it, it produces an appropriately uh, stark response from us. But from what I can tell, so in New York, they have, since the beginning, they have had these child centers open from right from the start and where essential workers had to send their children. People who worked on the subway, they had to have some place to go send their children. And there were children in these places. And so what we did not see in New York, and we have not seen this in schools, have been back open and in person, a dramatic increase in, well, really any increase at all in the infection rate. And as a matter of fact, if you look at schools specifically, in New York, the infection rate is much lower than the surrounding community. Now, they, now Dr. Pleat will tell you there's a few reasons for that. One, people are being careful to mask and wash their hands, and nasty, you should be washing your hands, right? If that's the best thing that comes out of this, keep washing your hands. And you know, little kids are little kids are dirty. I mean, you know, I love them. I work with them all the time. I hug them, but they're dirty, and they like to be dirty, right? And so this has actually made them, a, there's a culture of mindfulness of being really careful and, and more clean. And so... I think that's also going to have an impact on cold and flu season, which at schools, let me tell you, it, it, the cold and the flu rolls through here, their cycles of staff being out, runny noses, 
We haven't seen that. Well, we might not see runny nose because of the mask, but they're also supposed to tell us if they have a runny nose and stay home. But I think that that's some of the, I think kind of the net positive byproducts of this is that children have been being much more safe and much more careful. I mean, you know, they're said that they can't hug each other and we, hopefully we're going to talk about mental health at some point. They need hugs. We all need hugs. They definitely need hugs. I need a hug. But the babies too, I also, you know, and then there's this new strain and they don't have information about how that, it's more contagious, which that's another one that they don't say why it's more contagious. Like I kept asking that question when they say it's more contagious. I was like, what does that mean? Like, you know, and I asked my uncle about that question. I said, what does it mean that it's more contagious? And he's like, well, basically that door that to our cells kind of like opens up and before it would let in like a couple of the the virus and then shut the door. Whereas this one, the door opens up and it lets, it, it can't protect itself. It's like the virus penetrates that door. It's like all of the virus goes in. I think that's a terrible explanation, Marina. <laughs> <laughs> the good news though is that the vaccine is thought to still be effective against this new strain. And again, it may not be a hundred percent effective because no vaccine is a hundred percent effective. But the thought is if you got sick, you would get a mild illness, not severe illness. Right. And so just to be like when Rafiq talks about how sick he was, we would still consider that mild because he was not intubated. He was he didn't actually have to go to the hospital. Right. And yet you were really sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I sure was. I, I think it's actually a lot of um, black and Latino communities experience uh, like a weird kind of science illiteracy that comes from kind of like a like an animist perspective on healing, you know, like natural holistic healing. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a shame though, because I think the rapid turnaround of these vaccines is probably one of the most amazing things that happened last year. I think it was unprecedented, right? It's never it's never been that fast before. A lot of the focus is on scaring people into complying and that's very effective fear works really well but it would also be cool if somehow some of the the wonder and being impressed by how many how far we've come with science that something like this is even possible you know it's it's like there's not enough of that and i wish there were and it's it's kind of difficult uh, especially when I'm talking to, for example, like my mother, my mother is anti-vax. She always has, like when I was a kid, I did not get vaccinated. I had to like wait till I got to college and I just took myself over to get the rest of the, you know, MMRs and everything that I needed. Right. This year has been especially rough with our relationship because she doesn't believe that there's an, a pandemic really, you know, and she's not going to take the vaccine. And because of that, you know, I need to actually socially distance from my own mother and she's mad about it. Right. So we argue like my birthday was on Monday and she got mad because she didn't get why I wouldn't come over. Happy birthday. Oh, thank yeah. you. But it's fine. But it's like, yeah, I mean, it's Dominican mom, you know, we fight all the time, but it was just like, uh, yeah. she's like, well, what do you mean? It's not bad. Da, 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 da. I don't know. Just like, like, shut up. You know, thank you for the happy birthday. Bye. I love you. Shut the fuck up. Bye. I love you. Okay. Bye. And it's just like, <laughs> Oh. Yeah, like that's that's kind of how it has to be, and it's like, you know, I grew up uh, very aware 
of uh, medical malpractice history in American history, like the Tuskegee experiments, like the forced sterilization of Puerto Rican women in the I think fifties, right? And and like there's an angel of death lady that would like kill babies or something like that, right? It's like we have this, we should keep it in mind and understand it, but also recognize that all of that stuff gave rise to unscientific, holistic uh, practices that are okay, I think, in times when it's not like this, right? Like, yeah, eating more veggies. Yeah, of course, that's great. Wonderful. Do that. But it's like, it, it kind of like went this one direction away from science when it should kind of be parallel to it. I think people, you should just, we just got to like, not put up with it. Like, you just got to shame people into just doing it. Like, don't just don't put up with it. Just be like, yeah, I understand the history, but it, that's a trash opinion. You have to get the vaccine or you have to be safe. You know what I mean? I don't know that fear does work that way, though. I think that fear, I, I, I think that fear, if you if you push people towards the vaccine, I do think you will get more pushback. I, mean, I, I just think mean, like putting your foot down about people's lies, like the bullshit, right? You don't, you don't have to like say you have to get the vaccine because the, because that just looks very uh, suspect, right? But just to kind of say, like, if somebody starts going off on a tangent, it's like, well, you know, 5G makes you a midget and stuff. So what are you going to do? Right? You just got to not engage. Not and then also you have to interrupt them and say it's little person, yeah. not midget. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right? You go, first of all, it's little person. If they're five, but go ahead. They're more likely to say midget. I, I think that's the data. That's the data set somewhere. Sure. Yeah, I don't know. It's like, there's a lot of coddling, I think. And, and it, there's not, we're, we, it's like, you've got to get to the point where we can get past that and bring it together with like, just putting your foot down and saying like, this is the direction we have to go in if you don't want another 100,000 people to die. You know, that's just it. That's it. Isn't it about how we get that message out to like, we were talking uh, before, like you got to go to preachers in the black community, uh, barber shops where, you know, people are loud and speaking their voices. What other places, uh, Rennie? Oh, I can say Rennie. Yes, you can say Rennie. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Rennie sounds weird. Either we're going to go with Rennie or we're going to go with Dr. Rennie. <laughs> you know what? I think I also think to that old age. I, I, I'm starting to, I think it's happening. The change, you see this ice pack on my shoulder, right? That's for the hot flashes. This part, it works. I didn't know. I used to always have a fan. Now it's just, you know, this is how I'm going to go on dates. I'm going to go on dates like this. I'm like, what did you say? You know, um, but, (laughs) you know, they're going to, what's that on your neck? Oh, you don't need to know that. But seriously, like how do, how, what other ways can we communicate? And also to the Latino community as well. I think it has to be full strategy. Like for me, I'm going to listen to a doctor because I'm a doctor and I'm going to listen to science. But I think it has to be the athletes, the preachers, the politicians, the teachers. I think it has to be whoever you are going to look up to saying, here's the science. Here's why I went from a no to a yes. I agree with Melissa that you can't have you know logical conversations with illogical people. But the people who are actually just not educated about it and are actually willing to learn and are willing to say, oh, okay, so this part about it is interesting, right? Like, I'm willing to, to hear what you have to say. That's what we've been trying to do, is just to educate people and leave it on the table, right? Like, you make your own decision, but I just want to make sure that the decision you're making is based on sound medical information. You don't have to get it from me, you can get it from someone else, but actually do the work to go get it. Nice. I guess I would say, I think, how do we, I think most of the people that we're focused on who can be moved, 
right? Not the conspiracy theorists, even though these are people who might be being influenced by conspiracy theorists. I think they are afraid, right? They have seen our people dying from COVID and they are afraid to make a choice that would later lead to either not just their death or their great harm or long-term harm. And so I think we have to think about, well, what are the strategies that we help to move people from a place of fear to fearlessness, right? And if we think about the architecture of that kind of engagement, it almost, you know, more fear doesn't, doesn't usually kind of produce it, right? What usually happens is, and I think this is what Dr. Pleat was suggesting, it's inspiration. And to be sure, I think our society looks for inspiration in a lot of the wrong places, but at least we can, those are available avenues to inspiration. You know, we and my leadership team, um, my school is run by a group of four of us. And we had what can only be described as a knockdown, drag out debate about the vaccine before I, it was even available to us. And in that debate, I started out on the side of, no, we shouldn't get it. I'm not going to get it. And at the end of that debate, I was on the other side somehow, and the other three were back on the other side where I was. And I'm not sure how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I think part of it is also we are all trying to find our footing with something in a new situation, right? It's been not even quite a year, maybe 10 months at this point, and our world is completely changed and transformed. And as usual, we're looking at a lot of black and brown people dead and harmed. And so I guess I'm trying to like use putting my own body on the line and saying, I, you can watch me and I'm trying to use a real love offensive. And I'm trying to make the point that you made, Melissa, which is to say, not for you, but for those you love. Not for you. You're right, it's not for you. You will probably, if I'm talking to people who are young, but you will probably survive and be okay. But will your mom, will your abuela, right? Will your auntie, like, will they be? And that is where I've been able to make most of the gains. I actually just got a text. I got two staff members who told me they have appointments to go get the vaccine. So it's two down, 90 to go, but it's a start. That's, that's awesome. We did this initiative in our hospital that I uh, started with the executive director who's responsible for the staff who is materials management, patient transport, environmental services, and the cafeteria workers, right? Which in every hospital, quite frankly, look the same, right? A preponderance of Latinx and Black people, 50% or greater in some of those um, industries in our hospital, 75% in others. And so we had a conversation and I said, my concern is that it will mirror the regular outside community and that there'll be a lack of uptake. And he said, absolutely, I can tell you that now. They've gotten invitations to get vaccinated and haven't haven't gone. And so we literally came up with a strategy on how to how to give information. Because again, to me, it was not about coercion, it's about information. Because my fear was that many of them were saying no, just based on all the things that, that they were hearing from their families and friends, right? You're gonna grow a tail, your head's gonna pop off, you're gonna have this microchip. And so with their paper that they got to get vaccinated, we gave them a one pager of um, black physicians and the reasons why we decided to get vaccinated and pictures of us getting vaccinated. We did screensavers with the myths and the myth busters to actually address all those things that we talked about in the beginning. And I'm glad Rafiq brought up the chip because I had forgotten the chip, but that one was on there. And then we sent two doctors to their daily huddles. At least one of the doctors had to be black. They could ask any question they wanted, but if someone who looked like them. And this was really 
the first time that many of them have ever spoken to a doctor in the hospital. Right, you're talking about a hierarchy in the, of a system, right? In any system, the doctor is here and everybody else is where we know they are, but specifically support staff. And, and one of the comments that came was, they cared enough about me to come to me and let me ask the questions that I had to ask. And then we had a town hall that was actually also quite effective because it had people from different ranges. And we talked about everything, like how people went from no to yes. We educated them. Our CMO talked about systemic racism. He connected the January 6th white supremacy and white privilege to black vaccine hesitancy. He did that. A white man in our hospital connected that for people and then said, this is an opportunity. As Melissa said, this is revolutionary. This is a chance for us to turn the corner together. And he said, my black and brown brothers and sisters, I want to have us take this turn because I've seen what this has done to you guys and your families. And I, I think to Rafiq's point, it was inspiring, not fear inducing, but it was inspiring to say, we can all be in this together. Because we've been in all the drama together and it's not been good. The last eight months have been terrible, terrible. It's been the toughest time I've ever had in the hospital. Well, t- talk to that because, you know, I and I'm so glad to hear that because I was as I was listening to you, I was thinking of how many people of color are doctors in the field that can talk to their white employees about how they communicate. I mean, I had breast cancer in 2018. I'm, you know, I'm surviving. I had early stage. Thank you. Yes, I'm surviving. But I still have to constantly advocate for a mammogram. Now, I'm sick, you know, after you have the radiation treatment, you're supposed to have a mammogram every six months on the affected area. And I still get a letter that I get my mammogram once a year. My uh, surgeon is a black surgeon, black woman in Bellevue, um, Dr. Catherine Joseph, and she's shocked every time I show her that letter. I'm like, I, it still says once a year. And you tell me, she goes, you can Google it. And it says every six months after treatment, you're supposed to have that area mammogrammed. If you're against breast tissue, ultrasound and mammogram, the doctor's unlike her that I'm coming into contact, they're white and they don't seem like we're having this conversation and you, you know, what you just said is very inspiring, but I'm just wondering across the, you know, is it getting through? Maureen, I know it's not happening at all other hospitals. That's why it was so inspiring for me to have white male CMO make that connection. Cause I'm, and shout out to Bellevue. I trained at Bellevue. Bellevue was awesome. We take care, we took care of really, really complex patients but be clear, I've never had a CMO who was a white male in any hospital I've ever been in talk about systemic racism at all. OK. And, you know, I was joking that we've been through like four or five pandemics now. Right. I mean, hell, we forget that George Floyd was like in the middle of the COVID pandemic. Right? I mean, I, I spoke at a at a at a uh, White Coast for Black Lives Matter event at Penn's Franklin Field. Thousands of people at the end of it. Someone came and hugged me and I, I like froze. It was Rafiq's point, right? Like I hadn't been hugged in months. And this was a woman who was just inspired by what I said. And she just came and ripped me up. And I was like, oh my gosh, she's touching me. She's touching me. And I had to be like, calm down, right? But the truth is like, we were in the middle of multiple pandemics at the same time. And this mental health piece, be clear, we're not going to get over this anytime soon. Mm -hmm. We are not going to get over this. My husband's grandfather died of COVID and I was trying to watch the funeral on Zoom. And his grandmother was sitting in front of the casket in a chair by herself because this was before people were potting. And so they only had the chairs spread out. And she was sitting there looking at her dead husband in a casket and no one was around her. 
And then one of her sons came and just knelt next to her because there was no seat for him to be next to her because everyone was supposed to be spread out. That's not how we grieve. I mean, how are people supposed to bury multiple people at one time? And people can't even go and share that with their loved ones. Like, I mean, you know, I practiced in New Orleans post-Katrina and there were a lot of people who have some real PTSD from that. We are going to see that after this. I have no doubt about that. The medical profession is beaten down. We're, we are going through some stuff right now. And we don't have enough mental health services in this country to start off with. And now you add all these pandemics on top of it. I mean, we're figuring, I don't even know what you guys are going to do in the school in terms of kids needed social work services before this. Right. Listen, let me tell you this last week, I had one student who attempted suicide and another student we institutionalized. Mm. And both of them, I mean, it's, look, I think the greatest pandemic that's ever faced our country is racism. And I think we are seeing how it magnifies exponentially any other great crisis that comes along. And COVID is among the worst of them. So COVID isn't just killing us, right? Is also forcing us and pushing us away from each other. And you, you know, any teenagers, you know, Dr. Lee, I know you have a teenager in your house. They are going through it. They can't be, and, and social media is not enough. Anyone who thought social media was going to replace human connection, wrong. There's like anyone who thought that teaching online was going to replace real teaching, wrong. Humans need humans. And because of this, we are so disconnected now that depression and loneliness is just making everything exponentially worse. And so that, I mean, I think that we, I don't know what we're gonna do. I mean, we're strategizing now about what to do. We certainly don't have enough resources for the mental health practitioners we need in public schools. I mean, not at all. We let alone whether or not public schools even are ready to even take on this particular challenge. So uh, even with the vaccine, we haven't come up with the vaccine for racism yet. So I will say this and you know, I know I'm patting myself on the back. <laughs> someone, I, I rarely read reviews, but someone recently, I was telling, you know, Rennie this before someone put a little nasty one on our reviews on iTunes about how I'm narcissistic because I make everything about me. I do make everything about me. <laughs> That's why I'm a comic, right, Melissa? Yeah. Which, am I narcissistic? So what? Yeah, so what? Yeah, you know what? I'm going to own it. Yeah. If you're not that level, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I will say I, I'm proud of the one thing I've done this time is with my nieces who are teenagers, both of them. Well, 14. Yeah. So we do every Thursday and we started it at the beginning of this, like in, I think April. Yeah. About April, every Thursday is TT Thursdays where they talk to me, you know, and we have, One's in San Francisco and the other one is in Chicago. So we get on FaceTime and we talk. And then uh, the one in San Francisco, also she has a sister who she, she, she doesn't want to share with her, but we try to get the other one in the camera too. But um, it's really become a thing where in the beginning I thought, oh, they're probably going to hate talking to their aunt, you know, every week and all this. But they now go, hey, aren't we supposed to talk today? Or, or they'll go... Uh, I said, well, I thought it was the holidays you want to be with your family. They go, um, you are family. Because <laughs> I'm like, well, we do it every Thursday. But I'm I'm just listening to the, I mean, there's a lot of rolling of the eyes for the first minute. They're teenagers, right? Mm -hmm. But it's amazing that once they warm, they, they really did need it. And I didn't, and that was what shocked me was how much 
my nieces really needed to talk to someone that wasn't their school teacher, that wasn't their parents, that even wasn't their friends, just to have something to change it up. And they tell me, I just let them roll with how they're feeling about like every week. It's like hot topics, you know, with my nieces, TT Thursdays. And, and I, it's, it's unbelievable. And sometimes they make fun of me. Cause I'm like, I, I guess we got to go now. They're like, no, we're staying on. <laughs> and so I, I, you know, I would say that it's going to take, you know, not just the school system. It's also going to take families and communities. It's going to be like that, you know, grandma on the block. You know, we're gonna have to figure it out. It does take a, a village. Yeah, I know. In, in my joke, I said it doesn't have to take a village. You because know, I don't always, but it does. Now, I do want to ask you this because we have this article. Because comedians will sometimes take on a perspective, and it can be as as we know with cancel culture right now. You know, right now we could say anything, and it you could be canceled for it. But I do think right now, as a comedian, I don't know about you, Melissa, but Going on stage and joking about not taking the vaccine can be kind of dangerous right now. Would you think, Melissa? Mm, yeah, but who's going to stop anybody from doing that? No one. But I think Twitter should. Well, there's no comedy right now, so, you know, it's fine. No, but I'm just saying I think it... <laughs> comedy doesn't exist. That's true. <laughs> well, it does It does on Zoom if you want it to, by the way. But I don't. We'll talk about that. But, then, you know, <laughs> I just think Tiffany Haddish who I am a fan of, but Tiffany Haddish bullies doctors on Clubhouse. And I don't know, I, I don't, I'm not a member of Clubhouse. I just still don't really understand it. And people keep telling me to get on it. And now I'm hearing that it's not that great uh, of because of the fallout from all of these things, these conversations that are sort of out of context. Comedian and actress Tiffany Haddish is being accused of cyberbullying and allegedly doxing a black female doctor while pandering conspiracy theories about COVID-19. Along with other celebrities, Haddish came for a medical professional in a COVID-19 discussion on the popular Clubhouse app. According to observers, she and others perpetrated notions that COVID-19 is a government-produced virus supposedly built to subvert privacy freedoms. When a doctor only referred to online as Kayla spoke up about the pandemic, she was reportedly bullied in the chat session and then allegedly doxxed by Haddish. And I think she tried to commit suicide, too, as well. So I guess I ask you... Dr. Polite, has that happened to you? Many like, of us who are out here as leaders are, are going to get some feedback. Some of it's going to be positive. Some of it's going to be negative. I um, I wrote a piece for the GRIO when, it, when this all started. I think, I don't even know if I had gotten my vaccine by then. I think I may have gotten the first shot. But just about this idea that, that the medical profession needed to own our past mistakes so that we could actually address the racism that we've gone through so that people would have less vaccine hesitancy. And it got put on the on um, the Grios website and uh, somebody called me a coon. And I was like, oh, that's really, that's really harsh. <laughs> I mean, but I think there's this, this concept among certain people that black doctors who speak up for the vaccine are speaking up for the white man. I just think that's unfortunate. I have no idea what clubhouse is. I didn't even know what the term doxing meant besides to use it in context clues. Yeah. So have I been personally hazed like that? No, but I'm also as a, as a vaccine advocate, I'm, I'm getting back some positive and some negative feedback and I'm okay with that. Like, you know, I happen to be a fan of Tiffany Haddish's too. That really sucks that she's a conspiracy theorist. Cause as I've already said, I don't think you can have logical discussions with illogical people. And I do think conspiracy theory is different from miseducation. So I don't know exactly. I, I don't know that story. I just sort of read the one liner as well. Well, I, I am on clubhouse. I've been on clubhouse since November. 
And actually, I would actually what I what I would have said about Clubhouse is Clubhouse is great because it is the one forum where, other than Dr. Pali, I've heard from so many doctors and scientists, the actual scientists who developed the vaccine on Clubhouse. I would have actually said, "Oh my God, it's such a great learning place." But you know, as with most things that are social media, you can also find the other places that this kind of like conspiracy. I, you know, I've been in rooms where there have been. So Melissa Comedy's happening on Clubhouse, at least at least they're trying. I guess they I would assume that they're Tiffany Ash trying to <laughs> Look at Melissa's like, no way. She's kinda like me. I'm like, I don't wanna go either. I'm gonna read a book. That's what I'm gonna do. Yeah, I mean I mean it's 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 really interesting because I don't know who would go to a Tiffany Haddish room and expect to get advice about the vaccine. Right. There's literally a clubhouse room that talks about like COVID vaccine. And then there's a whole series of like Black doctors discussing the COVID vaccine and black scientists discussing the COVID. I mean, so you can have, you have choices, right? And so you can actually go to these rooms. So anyone who was raising their hand, if you're going to a Joe Button and Tiffany Haddish room and you're like, where can I get my scientific research for the COVID vaccine? You're in the wrong place. Thank you. For, that's a perfect button for that whole subject. I come from a family of conspiracy theorists. Okay. I do. Like my brother and my mother, that's my family. And both of them are like hardcore conspiracy theorists, okay? I went and talked to my mom the other day and she was telling me about 5G and I looked at her and I was like, okay, but like, you know, like how many sources have you checked to, to verify that? Or like, you know, I asked her like just some questions and she, she actually turned around when I asked that. She looked around and she goes, oh, Melissa, like I'm an idiot, you know what I mean? They are so entrenched that they think everybody else is uh, just asleep. You know what I mean? As somebody, I, I, I understand people like that though, because, uh, because I grew up in that family. I know, I know why, where it comes from and what's happening and what it is. Here's what it is. Okay. And, and you've probably like, if you think about it, you'll have noticed it from other conspiracy theorists, right? These are people that tend to be antisocial on some level, which I don't think it's a bad thing, by the way. I'm kind of antisocial. I think it's fine. But I think that when you are in isolation and you haven't developed like good uh, habits of looking up what you need to know, then it's easy for you to fall into uh, a conspiracy uh, theory, you know, into like adopting that as your worldview, right? Uh, a lot of these people tend to be mentally uh unstable maybe like emotionally unstable or maybe they grew up in a household that was unstable right so they're used to living in an environment and growing up in an environment where people are treacherous you know like people like their their motivations aren't obvious right so they're always kind of walking on eggshells so they've grown up assuming that where there's this surface thing going on there's a lot going on over here and this is where it's really at you know what i mean so they already have that proclivity. Again, I don't think that's bad either. I don't think it being antisocial is bad, right? There's this society takes all kinds, right? And I don't think being that kind of person can be bad. I think those kind of people have a place in society, but they're not often entertained enough to be brought into a conversation where some of their ignorance can be combated with actual knowledge. People just push them aside and call them names. And a lot of those people get called racist. A lot of those people get just looked at like, oh, well, you're, you're just a, like a minority. You don't know anything. You know, it's like, it's, it's all over the place. 
And it's like, it's just because people like that are off-putting and nobody likes to talk to them. You know what I mean? Yeah, you push them further and further away into like these little corners because they, they're not the kind of people that like to be a part of community things, you know? They don't want to be a part of a group thing. And I think that should be respected. And I think they should be pulled into conversations because I think they have valuable concerns. But I think they could stand to learn how to express them better. And they can only do that by being around people enough to learn how to do that. You know what I mean? Because I think there is a place right now to express concerns about politically what this pandemic is going to do to us as a society. And worldwide, people are very concerned about sort of like, I guess, maybe technocratic, authoritarian you know, systemic, blah, 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 that's going to affect how we interact with each other and how controlled that's going to be. I think the their hearts are in the right place, but I think it just kind of goes off onto this, you know, this crazy town level sometimes. So it's like, if you don't, if you don't give people a forum where they can talk about their political concerns in the midst of this pandemic um, and like what that, what it's going to mean for them in the future and how we interact with each other as a society, then they're going to just, they're going to find ways to just spread ignorance, you know? That's why I was saying it's the family. You you know, you know, a lot of times even at the uh, Thanksgiving uh, around the table, we laugh at the uncle and then uncle became the president, right? But we, we know now the effects of, of not talking to that uncle. I mean, we did talk. I talked to my uncle. There was a lot of yelling and screaming and yeah. eventually drinking and, you know, <laughs> and then crying and then drinking again. But I think that it takes the family, like I have a mother too, who's like, was, you know, thought Trump was, did the most for black people, you know, and I had to, I was like, where did that come? I didn't know, I didn't know where she got that from. I don't know what happened. I, I was like, I guess I haven't, but I haven't spoken to my mom. So when you brought that up, it made me realize that's the thing is this communication lacking within our own family. Like I, I hadn't spoken to her in a long time, so I don't even know where that came from. Had I spoken to her, I may have been able to negate a lot of the little theories or ideas that she had along the way. I mean, they think about that with the extremists, right? I mean, we saw what conspiracy theory can do on January 6th, right? I mean, it can make people fully think that the election was stolen. What's worse than that? They thought that they were having sex with babies underneath the White House. You understand? You, wouldn't you climb a wall if you thought there were babies having sex with adults in the White House? Melissa, that's funny. I said the same thing. I said, if I actually thought that the election was stolen, I would have been there too, you know, protesting, right? That's the irony. The difference is though, I actually would have been shot down off the Capitol wall. I actually would have been there, but I also know what would have happened to me. So this gets back to, you know, the ultimate pandemic that we are starting off dealing with. So yes, I think, look, whose job that is to talk to conspiracy theorists, I will tell you, I'm not taking that one on you guys. I got a lot going on on my plate. I'm going to leave that to people who know the folks. You guys go ahead and start those conversations. Okay. Yeah, I get, I get exhausted. So you got to make some choices. I do worry about our, our elders that are going to get these vaccines that end up standing in line. Now, I know, you know, Dr. Polite, that this is not your expertise of the rollout of the vaccine or, you know, but I, 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 well, I mean, I just feel like, you know, they just show that Howard Stern went to go get the vaccine and he, even he, he says, I spent three hours online. And if you're dealing with a population that is 75 and older, they ought to have something as simple as chairs. I mean, I don't disagree with that. It's the same thing when people are waiting to vote. Like, how do we manage to get elderly, you know, in the booths? We actually make accommodations. Do I think that the rollouts should be smoother? Sure. I mean, some of the rollouts in these states don't make sense. 
my cousin's a, a nurse in Florida and it was first come first serve. And they, she was like, I don't think that my hospital is going to have enough for the second dose. I was like, wait, this isn't actually real hard math. If you have 10,000 doses, you can vaccinate 5,000 people. And she's like, yeah, that's not what they're doing. They're just taking their 10,000 doses and just saying, whoever wants one of these, hopefully will have enough for your second dose. And I was like, that's actually not how this is supposed to work. <laughs> and sure enough, they didn't actually have enough for their second doses. I mean, it was like, so the rollouts have not been the smartest thing that we've done as a country. Shocker. Right. And so testing wasn't the best. You know, we have we have had a few months, you guys, where we have not shown the best and the brightest of the U.S. So hopefully, you know, we can actually figure this out a little bit better. So I got kind of not attacked, I wouldn't say, but everyone was shaking their heads when I said, I think with this new presidency, there'll be more transparency. And everyone was like, "Uh uh-uh. I mean, how do you feel as a medical professional? Do you, do you feel any confidence in this new presidency? I mean, I certainly feel more confidence than I did in the in 45, sure. <laughs> you know, I mean, transparency politics to me is not particularly transparent, but I will tell you that's the other Dr. Greer that will certainly talk to you more about politics. <laughs> I do stay in my lane about that. I I'm, I do vote, Marina, but... <laughs> but I, it's because you sound like her. I'm like, come on, give it to us. Yeah, <laughs> Rafiq will tell you, having a conversation <laughs> with the two of us is very different. That's <laughs> <laughs> so funny. I just, I do feel like, I mean... I don't know. Everyone says he's boring. It's, I, I don't get into all that. I, I don't call people boring. I, I call people who've anyone who's gotten rid of this last guy and is a hero in my book right now. I, I you know, I'm not going to go there with all the specifics and I get it. You know, he's not the Democrat for you, but I do feel like at least on some level, he's got a plan. It says here, when Joe Biden is sworn in as president on Wednesday, he plans to trigger, which is actually the day we're recording. We're re- recording on Inauguration Day, but this will go out later. He plans to trigger a range of executive orders aimed at solving two of the biggest crises facing the country, the economic downturn and the coronavirus pandemic. The ideal scenario for Biden's first 100 days in office includes pushing for a massive trillion coronavirus and economic stimulus plan. The Biden team is also planning another proposal aimed at reinforcing the economy. Other executive orders concern fighting climate change, pausing payments on student loans, rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement, and ending the travel ban from Muslim-majority countries. He also plans to quickly take a step to change the country's criminal justice system and expand health care to low-income Americans. And he says, we'll have to move heaven and earth to get more people vaccinated. So I don't know. That that makes me feel, it sounds good. I mean, I haven't heard, I didn't hear anything from Trump, except for it's going to get warmer. I mean, look, 45 left me a lot of sleepless nights, okay? So right now, I, I mean, I watched, the, I watched the inauguration part of it today, and I will tell you guys, I actually did like well up during a part of it. It just was to see some pomp and circumstance and to think we're going to actually be back to some semblance of order. It was nice to see some minority faces there, right? I got to see some actual black and brown people across multiple spectrums. It was not just all white men. Let's just start with that making me feel good. I felt seen. I felt heard. So I'm in a better place than I was yesterday. And ultimately, I think we got, I feel like we got some adults in the room. I mean, you know, I I can stop fearing nuclear holocaust. I can stop fearing a whole bunch of other things that literally, every single day, I was like, this might be the day he does it. Um, And, you know, I, 
I'm actually grateful to all the people who kept the nuclear football away from them. But like, honestly, like, I think we need some sobering leadership, right? We need some clear leadership. Our economy is wrecked. We're in the midst of a pandemic. I am, you know, when I, when I read the article, Marina, that you just read, one of the things that they highlighted that they were going to take on, take on racial equity, I didn't hear anything about that. So, so wait, but I'm hopeful. I'm actually legitimately hopeful because um, he's got an amazing vice president and he's surrounded by people who I think are really committed to that in their soul. And I think, I think of him as a good person. You know, there's been a lot of loss in our country, right? And he suffered a lot of loss. It's so someone who can empathize. I mean, if we compare the characteristics of 45 to 46, it's not even a close contest. Uh, we have an actual human being who cares about being human as the leader of our country. And I'll take it. I'll take boring. But I'll, I'll you know, with that. Mm-hmm. I'll take boring. Melissa's got a little bit of a, she's got a, her eyebrow went up. Oh, I mean, he's a politician. <laughs> I, you he know, cried. The one worst thing that, that happened in this, one of the bad things for the last four years is that people actually started to like politicians. And I don't agree with that. We should never like them. They're politicians. They want votes. Vote for them. Do your job and get out. That's all I care about. I don't want to glorify them. I don't want to like them. I want them to go and do their job, right? like tweeting every day about my favorite deli guy. You know what I mean? I shouldn't have to do it to a politician either. Like they're not better than anybody. In fact, they're worse than most people. They're not doctors. They're not teachers, right? Oh, Alyssa gave us a shout out. She did. (laughs) You know, do your job. (laughs) That's that's all I care about. And I have Melissa's, I believe in staying in my lane, right? So I'm a doctor. Like I, I, I have not, I can't tell you that I've read the constitution, right? But I do actually think if you're an elected official, that should actually be part of the job. Like, I actually do think the same way I know about the pelvis. I think you should actually know what the Constitution says you're supposed to do. And I think that you should do that right? because I elected you to do that. And that's not what happened in the last four years. And for me, as like Joe Schmo, who goes to the polls, I know a little bit about folks. I, I do actually expect people to have an ethical and a moral compass. And I expect them, if they are chosen leaders, not to be above anybody else, but I do expect them to make the right decisions for our country, not for themselves. I can't even hear the word narcissistic, Marina. And like, to me, no one else gets to be called that ever again. There's only one narcissist, right? No one else will ever come close to that level right now for me, ever. We can call you that as a joke, but not really. You get the little in, right? Because that title has been taken and it will always, to me, be owned by Trump. I think Melissa makes a good point though, right? In the sense that like, wow, you know, the floor has gotten pretty low for what we expect from our leaders if we're like, please don't blow us up, right? That, that can't possibly be all we expect from the people who are in charge of the taxes we pay and the weaponized military that we have. And I think we gotta expect a lot more for sure. And I expect a lot more. You say you're gonna make a promise to do something. While I anticipated Trump wasn't gonna do his job, I hoped he would. He didn't, miserably failed. I have the same expectations for this administration that they will actually do what we elected to them to do, which is to take care of our our country. Well, I think this is a good place to come to a close. You guys, thank you so much. Now, I am going to ask you one more question. This is just fun because I think it's important to know what you're reading and watching right now. I mean, like everyone's at home. 
So I'll start with you, Dr. Police. What are you what are you reading that you enjoy or watching? Either one. I'm actually audio booking, which I count as I count that as reading. I don't know if real readers count that as reading. Yes. We have a departmental book club, and right now I'm reading Ajomo's book, Let's Talk About Race. Cool. And where can our listeners find you? I am on Twitter at Polite Florencia, and I am on Instagram at Florencia Polite MD. With friends like us, you can talk about the COVID vaccine and birthdays and treason and have a good time doing it. Yes, love it. Melissa, what are you watching or reading? Uh, I'm reading a a bunch of books by John Milton. And I just finished uh, Paradise Lost and Paradise Regained. And I'm reading uh, Samson Samson and Delilah and uh, and also The Art of the Deal. I read The Art of the Deal. Those are very two different reads. Very two very different reads. <laughs> you can find me at Melissa Diaz for you on Instagram. And oh yeah, and I'm starting a book podcast where we talk about books. Nice. And it's with my boyfriend, and he always reads with audiobooks. He does audio, I do the text, and then we we talk about it. So with friends like us. Will t- uh, I'm never good at these. <laughs> <laughs> Neither am I. <laughs> With friends like us, we'll keep you updated on the latest conspiracies. <laughs> and dispel them. And dispel them. Brother Rafiq. So I just watched One Night in Miami, and it was fantastic. Shout out to Regina King. That sister is a goddess and brilliant. So if you haven't seen it, watch it. I'm reading um, two books, actually. One called Emergent Strategy by Adrian Brown. It's based on the philosophy of Octavia Butler, who I absolutely love, my favorite author. And then the other one is The Body Keeps Score, which is a book about research and trauma and how it kind of manifests in our physical lives. That one's more for work. And I am doing the traditional reading. I'm a teacher, so. Uh, You can find me on Instagram at Rafiq610 and on Twitter, Rafiq Kalimadine. With friends like us, we can change the world. Yay! Keep it very corny. (laughs) By the way, Melissa, I uh, took a whole class on Milton Paradise Lost. Love it. Mm -hmm. Oh, can I ask you some questions after this or something? Okay. You sure can. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, so Marina Franklin here. You can go to my website, marinafranklin.com. Always check out our live shows as well. We also have a lot of merch. We have a lot of Friends Like Us merch, hoodies, t-shirts, coffee cups. Oh, my God, the coffee cups. Uh, you know, supposed to be. Yeah. Okay. And I just, I I really appreciate you all for being here uh, today with, with Friends Like Us. You can bring really smart, informed individuals on the show who know what they're talking about and get you the information you need. Check, Check us out. out. Perfect. Just like gold, it's so so pure, it purifies my mind and lets my spirit soar.